Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We've got a great show for you today. You've seen her on ESPN, Tennis Channel, and Australia's Seven Network. You've heard her voice on the Racket Magazine podcast, and you've read her witty and at times biting banter on Twitter. As a junior, she was amongst Australia's elite. And as a pro, she grinded on tour, getting to number 64 in the world in singles. But she rose to true glory in doubles, where she won four grand slams and became number one in the world. She spent 17 years on the Australian Fed Cup team and played in four Olympics. She has been the coach to world number two, Karolina Pliskova, and was most recently working with her fellow Aussie, Sam Stoser. Renee Stubbs is going to illuminate what's happening behind the scenes on the women's tour. She's going to tell us about one of her most emotional moments as a broadcaster, and she's going to break down what it's really like to date your doubles partner. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. So first of all, we're in these Village. We're in New York City. Uh, I'm not going to disclose <laughs> the exact area so there are no stalkers. Um, well, the young woman you hear is former world number 64, I think, in singles, but she was the number one tennis player in the world in doubles, along with her partner, generally speaking, was Lisa Raymond. She is prolific on the tour, a coach, uh, you broadcast for almost every network in the whole world right now, right? I have broadcasted for, um, yeah, some pretty significant uh, networks. She's on all the networks. It, that is Renee Stubbs. Um, thanks for having us. Hey, thanks, uh, thanks for uh, walking up the stairs. Now, you couldn't know this, but um, I had a moment in, I think, 1997 um, where I finagled my way into player transportation at the French Open, and I ended up in a car... With you and Lisa Raymond, <laughs> and I have a distinct memory of the two of you were singing. I think it was Fiona Apple. Oh my God! Yeah, but that, at that moment in time, you could, you two were on top of the world. Actually, '97 was really the first year that we really played a lot together. And you were a couple. Or the year before was it? God, I can't remember. Was it the year before? I don't know. Give or take, I've forgotten. Yes, we were a couple. Um, well, we're gonna get to that. Um, <laughs> We have a lot to talk about. I mean, this is tremendous. I mean, there are like Australian Open cups in the windows. It's not a very Tennessee apartment, but, you know, there are the, the, the Wimbledon trophies, the cups are on the low by the wet bar. I mean, this yeah, is Yeah, I do get asked that question, where are your trophies? And I say they're in the closet, and they are. They're in the closet. Tremendous. I take the Wimbledon ones out because they're, they're really pretty, and they're not too obtuse. They're kind of small. Yeah, um, you won Wimbledon. And the Come only on. time I uh, I ever use my other trophies is to put flowers in them. They're very handy. Tremendous. <laughs> um, how does an Aussie get to East Village? Um, well, uh, obviously I lived in Florida for forever. I mean, up, upwards of, God, almost 20 years. Um, and so, that, so Florida was your home base. Florida was my home base when I played. Uh, it was just too much for me to fly consistently back to Australia. That's, and by the way, that's a standard move for Any, Aussies. Mo- I would say I would say most Australians live either in London or in Florida or in the US. 
Um, and then there's the odd that, you know, can continually fly back to Australia. I mean, Sam Stoza had a place in Florida, actually not far from me, throughout her career. And, you know, Ash Barty obviously is flying back and forth to Australia. So kudos to her. Um, but, but you're Tampa. You were- I was in Tampa. I was in Orlando for a long time because my coach, my original coach, Ray Ruffles, was there. And a lot of Aussies were in Orlando, so it was kind of like an Australian enclave. Uh, Liz Smiley, back before me, lived there. Liz Smiley. Jason Stoltenberg and Todd Woodbridge and all those guys. And then I moved to Tampa. Then I went to Chicago for a little bit um, with my partner, and then I always wanted to live in New York just once in my life. So I said, let's do it. Let's just get right into it. We do a five-set format. Yeah. Our first set we called the Off the Court Report. Now, I know from your social media that your mother is affected by fires in New South Wales. Yeah, actually, um, this morning I woke I went to bed last night. I texted her because um, the last word I heard that they were allowed to go back to their property. Um, so that was, I was very thankful for that because the fire was really heading right for them. But I went to bed and I said, how is it looking? You know, because things can change so quickly with fires. And um, I was super tired last night. I ended up falling asleep. I woke up this morning about 5 a.m. and she had texted me a picture of the fires were back sort of like in her range. Um, And she said, thankful for the very um, brave firefighters who were dropping water bombs from planes above and still fighting it. So it's still um, a little prickly, we could say. It's still very scary. So, you know. Now explain. New South Wales is is the state state where Sydney is. Yes. And brush fires. Global warming. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it's just like what we're seeing. I mean, I I kind of actually tweeted out a couple of things today. I mean, Venice is underwater. And Australia's on fire, California is on fire, and someone cannot tell me that it's not because of global warming. I mean, it's crazy. Um, climate change is a real thing. And, and we have to say climate change, not global warming, because it's, it's you know, then you get the idiot saying, yeah, but it's snowing here in New York right now. It's freaking so cold right now, and it's not even winter. But it's climate change, and it's a real problem. And in Australia... You know, there's a lot of pe- people that have a problem with, we call them the greenies in Australia. Um, and, you know, listen, I recycle. I try not to eat much meat anymore. I'm really trying to think about what I can do, my small little part of me can do for the world. Um, and, you know, we don't backburn in Australia anymore. They, they stopped backburning, sort of, sort of like taking care of the brush fires prior to them being big, big problems. So there's a lot of shit hitting the fan in Australia because of stuff like that, because when you leave brush, meaning like all the leaves that fall on the ground and you don't get rid of them and you don't burn them away, they become a massive problem. And that's what we're seeing now in Australia. And you know, uh, a year ago, almost to the day, we interviewed Brad Gilbert and they were directly affected by fires in Malibu. Yeah, and Pam um, Shriver recently had to you know, evacuate from her house as well. So this Palisades. is affecting a lot of people yeah. around the world. All our thoughts to the people that have been affected by these fires. And for those that don't think global warming and, and climate change is a thing, um, I don't know what Reed. to tell you. Yeah. Read. Um, now listen, we, you know, we hear your voice all the time on one of our favorite tennis podcasts. You do some great interviews with some of the most interesting people on the tour. And to me, it kind of feels like you're all sitting around in the living room. It's fun, isn't it? It's just great. I mean, I love bringing personalities of players that trust me out into a forum where they can be themselves. Racket Magazine podcast is hosted by Renee and at times, Caitlin Thompson, who's also been on our show. Caitlin likes to say co-host and producer, Caitlin Thompson. And we can't forget about our 
fashion correspondent, Andrea Petkovic. And, they, and Andrea Petkovic, who's one of the more thoughtful and uh, quirky and interesting players on tour, is a collaborator and their fashion court, the de facto fashion court. She's done a couple of co-hosting now, so, you know, we're kind of getting her into the mix more. Getting her into the mix. I love that we, we talk about Andrea Pekovic as quirky and interesting. Let's just put it this way. She's just a tennis player that happens to be smart <laughs> and well-read. <laughs> uh, you must have traveled 30 weeks this year. Yeah, a lot. And you just got back from Asia. Yeah, I was in Asia for four weeks. Then I went back to Australia with Sam for a 12-day. Sam Stozer, Sam who I'm, Stozer, I'm coaching. Sam uh, worked with her kind of on the low. It's sort of not like a highly publicized scenario. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, some people sort of announce and denounce and decouple, you know, <laughs> on, on Instagram and Twitter these days. Like, they got to announce, like, Give me a break. But, um, but yeah, so uh, Sam just uh, did the old-fashioned thing, which was call me on the phone and said, um, would, uh, you know, I really want to give this one more shot in my singles. She was really struggling in her singles. Her ranking was dropping tremendously. And for a Grand Slam champion, a former top 10 player, a very solid player for a long time, you know, things were looking a little dire. And she was, the confidence was not there. And so, you know, she called me up and she obviously knew I wasn't working with Carolina anymore and had a bit of spare time at the end of the year because after the US Open with ESPN, I, I don't really do much. So I get this inevitable call every friggin' year and to go we, to China. And, but we actually, we saw, I actually had, I saw you working with her at the Bronx Challenger yeah, right that was on the, That was on the, it wasn't really on the low because, you know, people sort of in, in tennis, you know, sort of knew a little bit uh, just because we'd probably said a couple of things. But, yeah, people were like, oh, you're here with Sam? And I'm like, yeah. And they also knew I lived in New York, so it could have been a friend thing. Um, I didn't, I wasn't super prevalent um, at the US Open for her because I was so busy with ESPN. Um, but then, obviously, in Asia, people saw me. Um, you know, she made the finals of Guangzhou, which was a really, I have to say, it was an incredibly proud moment for me as a coach and also as a friend to watch somebody that I just respect so much and Sam. I mean, that was a, that was a, that was a pivotal moment in her career. I have to tell you, like, you know, for, for everybody out there, I mean, she was making a very concerted effort to try and get her singles back. And if it didn't work out at the end of Asia, she was really contemplating how much she wanted to play singles anymore. Um, because, you know, when so, you've been so a you great guys, player, so, you don't want to be playing qualifying at the Bronx or shit like that. You know, you want to be out still playing main draws at Grand Slam. So that was an incredibly powerful week for her as a player to rec recognize that she could still make a final of a, you know, of a WTA event. You know, it's in, you know, tennis is incredible. You know, you think there's no stories left. Mm -hmm. You think you heard it all. And sure enough, former, uh, you know, number four world, world number four. U.S. Open winner, French you know, Open finalist. You know, uh, I mean, you know, tries to pull a, a reset, and finals Guangzhou. You know, when, the problem is, is when things go to Asia, things get lost in the sauce. They do. That's a great. Well, Renee. You know, Stubbs, and I gotta Renee tell Stubbs, you, her off the court report is really an on the court report because yeah. she just coached a player to a, 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 a WTA final. Yeah, and I, you know, That's she, a great she came really close to winning the tournament too. She won the first set against Kennan, who, you know, just was an alternate for the WTA finals. A tremendous year from her. And so, you know, it was a set. It was 3-2, you know, 30-all. Like, I remember it like it was yesterday. She was two points away from going up a break in the second and maybe winning that tournament. And, you know, she was playing really, really well in that match. So, I mean, it was just, it was great. I just got back um, not long ago after being with Sam and Shenzhen for the doubles where they 
lost a really heartbreaking match, um, heartbreaking in the semifinals to Babos and Miladinovic. And I've caught up on my doctor, doctor appointments and all that sort of great stuff that you do when you, you know, finally get some time at home. Did your laundry. Did my laundry. Let's move into our on-the-court report. It's our second set. Let's start with the women. What did we learn in 2019? Well, that, uh, once again, no dominant player um, and tremendously incredible storylines. I mean, Bianca Andreescu, are you kidding me? Coming from nowhere and qualies of Auckland to winning Indian Wells, winning, having a break because she's injured, coming back, winning the, the, the Rogers Cup in Canada, her hometown tournament and then backing up by winning the US Open are you out of your mind I mean that's just the most amazing story that's like what happened with Osaka the year before where you like got this superstar that comes out of nowhere and then you've got another superstar that comes out of nowhere and 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 a great story we had the pleasure of talking with her shortly before the US Open began and um I really enjoyed her um, yeah. have you had any interesting um interactions interaction with her I have. Um, you know, uh, she, I didn't really know her that well just because she really hadn't been playing on t- the main tour. Um, and then I, I bumped into her, I, I spent a little bit of time with her um, prior to the US Open um, at the Aurora Games up there and we had a good chat about just coming back and the injuries and she was very open, really great. We're talking about just everything in general. Sorry, for our listeners, the Aurora Games was a uh, celebration of female athletes put on by Yvonne Lendl's longtime agent, Jerry Solomon. We were there as well. It was a solid event. Yeah, I mean, let's hope they can continue to put it on and get the sponsors because, you know, it's great showcasing women athletes. Just had a nice little chat with her. It wasn't long or anything, but just got to know her a little bit there. And then I walked by her after she won her first round at the US Open. And I said, well done. And she said, thanks. And I said, and I can't remember, honestly, if it was me or her that said six to go. I, yeah. That is the most random thing yeah. to say to somebody. I wouldn't say that to 97% of the tour. But for some reason, that yeah. came out of my mouth. And she was like, yeah, six more to go. Like, yeah, exactly. Thought Not like, was- is that how many it takes to win a Grand Slam? You know what I mean? Like someplace like... Oh, six, oh, oh, I got it. She was like, yeah, six more to go. I thought that she was going to win the tournament. And I actually watched her practice with that Korean player who got went deep. She's for, she's American, but she's Korean. And she was like all stretched. She was all wrapped up like a mummy. Oh. Um, she had a great run. Oh, my God. Christian. Uh, Christian. Christi- 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 yeah, 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 of so course. I saw her practicing with Christian early. That's why. And she was murdering her. Yeah. And I was watching her play, and I hadn't really seen her play so close. Yeah. And well, no, she's I, a good player. She, she hits the ball so heavy. Yeah, she hits the ball so heavy on her, on her forehand in particular. And, you know, when you think about most of the tour, most of the women have really great backhands, you know. So when you have a player that has a super big, heavy forehand, that player has such an advantage, in my opinion, because most women players don't have you know, quote-unquote, great forehands. They have great backhands, good forehands. And so when you have a player that can expose your forehand weakness, and there's a lot of them, that is a problem for these women players. So someone, you know, when Sam was playing well, her forehand was so big. Kuznetsova has a big, solid, big, you know, spinny forehand. Andrescu, 
Ash Barty, number one in the world, way stronger forehand. So when you have a very dominant forehand player, Pliskova, I'd say, is sort of more dominant, certainly on her forehand as well. Those players can do a lot, a lot of damage. And it's true. I mean, in women's tennis, there's, there's 40, 50, 60 players on the tour that don't ever miss a laser backhand. No. It's incredible. So many of them have. It's just, it's just a lot easier for young girls to develop a better backhand because they have the second hand on it. They can use their body a little bit better. They can get that momentum swing into the shot. Whereas the forehand's a little bit tougher to develop because they're not as strong. They've got the one hand on the racket, obviously, and they hit it late because they've got the body open. And so a backhand is just a more natural shot for two-handed, for, for girls in particular. Um, and then you've got the odd one or two that have that beautiful one-hander like Carla Suarez Navarro and, you know, like a, you know, prior to that, and Emily Moresma. But, you know, that's Conchita Martinez. I mean, I had a one-hand, a backhand, but you had to be kind of strong and a little bit dudish when you were a kid. And all of us fit into that category. Your partner had a great... And Lisa Raymond, same thing, you know. Um, Beautiful. There's also a, you know, tendency in that as well. Um, You know, you've got those little kind of tough little tomboys, you know, that had the one-hander because they were Justine a bit stronger, Hannon. Justine Ennen, you know. Um, so Gabriella Sabatini. Gabby Sabatini, yeah. So, you know, but... They tended to also be backhand strong players. I mean, Steffi was an enigma because she had the slice, but her forehand was so strong. Um, but she didn't quite have the top spin that that some of these other players had. But I mean, if you said at the she did pretty well. If though. you said at the beginning of the year the slams would be won by Osaka, Barty, Holop, and Andrescu. I mean, Holop won. I mean, Holop won Wimbledon. I think we need to preface by saying if you had told me that. Halep, Osaka, Barty, and Andrescu were going to win slams and said which ones would they win, I would have got them all wrong. Let's put it that way. 100%. I would have said Barty would have won Wimbledon. I would have said Halep would have won the French. I would have said Osaka probably would have won the US Open again. And maybe Andrescu, that, that's a surprise. I would not have said, I would have, I would have had a hard time trying to figure out which one she would win. She was nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, and then, I mean, and then, and then, you know, Muguruza looks like she's like on her way off the tour. Kasakina had a tragic year. Yeah, tragic. So, and then Savalenka had a very tragic year as well, and then she kind of picked it up at the back end. Yeah. Then, then, you know, when you talk about interesting sort of like moments, um, I bumped into Savalenka at the U.S. Open after she just won the U.S. Open doubles, and she had a great year in doubles with Mertens. Um, but she was kind of very negative about her singles and down about it and frustrated. And, and I happen, you know, I know her quite well. She's a great, great chick. I, I, she is so good for tennis because she's just so fun on the court and she's great with the fans and great with the kids and all, all kinds of reasons why I want her to do well. But um, I looked at her and I said, you'll be fine. I literally said, you're going to be fine. You're fine. You're totally fine. This is normal. You had an amazing year last year. You had a tremendous amount of pressure on you. You started by winning your first tournament of the year in Shenzhen. And then you struggled because all this pressure and expectation, she had a tough year. Um, People started to learn how to play her a little bit better. And that's normal in a sophomore sort of year. After you've had a great year, just ask Jeannie Bouchard. And I said, you're going to be fine. You're going to be totally fine. Trust me when I tell you that. Because she has literally the heart of a lion, which is why she has an arm. And over time, she was, and I think the US Open victory in doubles certainly helped her confidence, just like it did with Ash Barty last year. And she went on to have a phenomenal run in Asia. So um, she's going to be fine. She's back. And she's, as I said, she's great for tennis. Um, Tremendous amount of injuries. What, 
what are what I mean? What are we learning about that? Are we gonna are we gonna see a change in in, in tennis? That are we gonna do something about this, or is it just gonna continue? Well, I mean, yeah, it'd be great to know the secret sauce, wouldn't it? Um, to know what to do because every player has had to deal with this in throughout their career. Um, yeah, and every single player we've talked to, we've done fifty episodes now. Whether it was Jimmy Arias or Gigi Fernandez or even Maioli, they all Nicholas Pereira. They everyone at some point an injury shut down. Oh yeah, shut them down. Yeah, I mean, it, it, injury didn't really like shut me down per se, but I was quite you know I was a, a lot older. I think I made my last Wimbledon final when I was 39, 38 or thirty nine, and. Uh, you know, I had my issues. I had two knee surgeries, you know, meniscal surgeries. I had a, I have a labrum tear in my left hip. And my, you know, I, I'm dealing with, uh, you know, my, I was in a physio yesterday for my knee because my cartilage is like, I've got a, quote unquote from the doctor, a pothole in my cartilage. So, I mean, every tennis player is messed up. I mean, we've got but osteophytes in my neck. I had one period in my singles where it really hurt my singles career where I was 64 in the world at my highest and I got a terrible wrist injury for seven months and my ranking dropped to 200. So gonna, that sucks, yeah. you know, when that happens and it's building back up and being able to deal with that. But is, is it the ball? Is it the rackets? Is it the courts? Is it the schedule? Or is it just all like a perfect storm of... It's, it, it, you can say it's everything, it's everything, but it's also mechanically how are you built? You know, how are your mechanics when you hit the ball? How are your mechanics when you walk? Um, what is the racket you're using? What are the strings you're using? What are the balls that get used there? That's going to affect your arm and your shoulder and your elbow. You know, the court surface changes from week to week. What shoes are you using? I mean, it's like good luck in trying to figure it all out. It's impossible. Um, you know, is it colder today? Was it warmer yesterday? Uh, did I step a little bit weird? Um, you know, did I overstretch for that one ball in practice when I should have had a bit of... Bit, bit of bit more of a warm-up? Did I, did I train right the day before? Did I train right last week? Did I give myself enough time off? I mean, the, it, it's an endless, you know, chasm, like, friggin' good luck. Yeah. It's like the Pacific Ocean trying to find the fish you want. I mean, it's, it's not, I think everybody tries, you know, they go gluten-free, they go, you know, and the players they're that stay vegans, up. they're, yeah, I mean, they've, everyone's tried, every, and everyone's trying different things. Meditation, I wish I'd done meditation when I played. That would have certainly helped some, alleviate some of the stresses because some sure. players that are more stressful people certainly have more issues. Look at Roger, I mean, he's a pretty relaxed dude, right? He's really not struggled with injuries at all in his career until he got a bit older. That's normal, right? Back injuries that he's had to deal with or knees, that's normal with the wear and tear of just, you know, everyday practice and playing. What happened to Plushkova? This year in general? What, what, what happened to her and Conchita? You stopped working with her. She doesn't seem to be closing at the back end of tournaments. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, look, she had a great year tournaments-wise, winning four tournaments, yeah, I believe. I think, yeah. um, so, you know, finishing number two in the world, I think most players most players would take of that year. No but problem. for a player like her, who is in the conversation every time of when we have those, you know, our conversations at Grand Slams, who's the best player? Never would in a Grand Slam. Well, she's always in the mix, always in the mix. Um, what happened with me, um, she just, you know, wanted to work solely with Conchita. Um, my schedule wasn't conducive, obviously, to what she wanted, um, with me still working for ESPN. Was it acrimonious or was it a pleasant goodbye? Um, it, 
wasn't um, what I wanted. I wanted to continue to work with her. Um, I obviously with ESPN, I'm not working all that much, just the Grand Slams and odd week here and there. So yeah, I mean, I was scheduled to go with her to Europe um, and to the French Open, for example, and that changed and she went solely with Conchita and you know that's her decision as a as a player as a professional um to wanted to keep the continuity because Conchi and I were mixing weeks I was doing Europe Conchita was going to do the grass and the US Open series um tournaments because I was working for ESPN um so she just wanted to have the continuity through the year so I can't blame her for that that's her decision to make um it's her career I thought it was um, better to keep me on board just because I think some of the things that she needs to improve on is something that I can really help her with, whether it be transitioning a little bit more to the net, finishing points off, going forward, not getting too much into the baseline rally type of matches, particularly against the Hallops and, you know, some players that she was losing to. Um, But again, that's her decision to make. As far as what happened with her and Conchita, honestly, Craig, I don't know. I really don't know. I, uh, we, were, we were talking about it yesterday on my podcast with Caitlin on the Racket Magazine podcast, and I, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't spoken to Conchi, and I have not spoken to Carolina about Could it. Could you even venture a guess? Um, I, she didn't win a Grand Slam. Um, that's about the only thing I can say, that she felt like she wasn't getting what she wanted to feel like she could win a slam um, or, or somebody else came along that was in her ear that wanted Someone to work with her. her or somebody that came available. I'm, I've got a bit of a guess who I think she might want to work. She might work with. Um, I don't want to. I, I said it yesterday. Um, I think maybe Dominika Subokova's coach is now looking for a job, obviously because she's retired. Who's Subokova's coach? Um, I can't remember his name right okay. now. I can't, um, so you think she may be sliding over? I think that maybe he's available. So that might be somebody she'd like to work with because you know they can speak Czech together. Sure. He's Slovakian. She's Czech, obviously, but they speak the same language. Sure. Um, but I don't know. That's a total yeah, guess yeah, from yeah. my, my I, standpoint. And, and, and Raymond Sloiter was fired by Kiki. He could be uh, on the. He could be somebody she could work and, with. And, and that's a similar situation in that she didn't have the result that. Again, you don't know. Yeah. You don't know what's going on. Look, there was a couple. It's of interesting. Little, they're both feel there, players. There's also a couple of little things. You know, players get annoyed by shit that you do or stuff that happened, or sure. you, they didn't like that you did that or this sure. or that, and then players get annoyed by it, and then and they. But I will say this, this is one thing that I can say, that I did say um, to Carolina, well, not to Carolina, I told it to her husband. I said, you know, at some point, every player needs to take responsibility for not having the results sometimes. And you can't always put it on the coach. Um, And I think that, you know, Simona Halep is a perfect example of that over the last few years. Look, she wasn't getting the results at slams. Darren was willing to walk away and said, here's the deal. If you don't do X and Y, you're never going to win the slams. If you keep throwing your racket when you're up a set and two love 30 all against Ostapenko at the French Open and carrying on like a pickle, you're not going to win a grand slam. And, you know, she turns herself around and was able to deal with the pressure of those grand slam finals because she knew that Darren also was saying, if you carry on like this and throw your racket and get frustrated, whether it be when you're up in a match or even in a match, you're not going to close those matches out because at a... At, the point of a Grand Slam final, the person you're playing against is the second or the best player in the tournament at that stage. So you will not get away with, you know, tanking or semi-tanking or whatever and hoping you're going to win because that person down the other end is playing as well, if not better than you. They're the only one in the tournament, you know. So, so they're playing well enough to beat you today. So you cannot get away with whatever it is that is your go-to 
bullshit on the court to lose a match. And so Simona was like, all right, I gotta pull my head in and not get frustrated. And she did that and look what she ended up doing. She's won two slams now. Um, by the and, way, Simona Holop, five foot four tops, yeah. wins Wimbledon, okay? Uh, oh, it's, unbelievable. Uh, it's unbelievable. And what a great match. I mean, look, Serena will tell you, you know, look, when Serena loses, she's certainly, we know that she wasn't at her best. She wasn't serving you off the court. She wasn't, you know, hitting big. I mean, there's, look, uh, but, but, but there are matches that she has lost in slam finals where she's actually been outplayed. And she was outplayed at Halep. Where Halep definitely, look, I would say Serena would say she would like to have served better and played better. But Halep was unbelievable in that match. Simona played, saved her best for last, and that was a virtuoso performance. Yeah, it was incredible. She didn't miss the ball. She didn't miss. She didn't miss. She didn't miss. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I want to ask you, um, you are you obviously a, a prolific stalwart of Aussie Fed Cup team. Um, just quickly, your impressions of... Fed Cup uh, this year and the final. Um, yeah, my sense is, is it's just a heartbreaker. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was sitting right here, right where I'm sitting right now on my couch, till 4.30 in the morning, watching every single match from 10 p.m. to 10 p.m. Um, you know, watching Ash lose an absolute heartbreaker on Sunday after the, just the most... You know, the saddest thing for me is that Ash Barty's had the most incredible year of her life. If I'd said to her three years ago, uh, P.S. and by the way, you're going to be number one in the world, you're going to win a Grand Slam, you're going to finish year-end number one, and you're going to be in the finals of Fed Cup. Would you take it? She'd be like, are you serious? I go, yeah, it's actually going to happen. And then PS cut to on Sunday of winning the Fed Cup for Australia for the first time in 45 years. The last time we were in the final was 93 with us playing against Spain on clay. We had no chance. <laughs> to playing in Australia in front of a home crowd of 11,000 people and you walk out to play your final singles match of the year after the phenomenal year that you've had, and you lose 7-6 in the third to virtually, in your opinion, probably cost you the win. Um, that's the only match that she'll probably remember from this year, which is so sad for me because, you know, she just come off winning the biggest prize money check in, in history of women's tennis at $4.5 million. She flies to Australia. She wins her first match 0-0. Oh no. So you're just like... Yeah, baby, this is it. I mean, come on. And then she loses 7-6 in the third to Kiki Mladenovic. I mean, it's just brutal loss. And then on top of that... You just give me the chills. Like, on top of that... Sports is just so rough. Isla Tomlanovic goes out and wins her match, and then you get another chance, which you probably think you're not going to get because you, you're supposed to win both singles matches, and then you have the opportunity to go out there and redeem and win the doubles, and then you lose the doubles match. It's just, it was friggin' brutal, dude, to watch. I was sitting here just, I, I've never felt so sorry for two amazing athletes in Sam Stozer as well, who did not, Sam will be the first to say that she didn't play a great match. And then Ash loses both of her matches on Sunday. And those are the two most important female tennis players in the last decade of Australian sport. You know, to, to the year that Sam, you know, had a couple, you know, 10 years ago in 2009 and then 2011 to beat Serena and then now eight years later, Ash has the year that she has and then those two have the opportunity to win the Fed Cup for Australia for 45 years and they, they couldn't get it done. I mean, it's so sad. It was so and, disappointing. And you need to acknowledge Kiki, Kiki Mladenovic yeah, yeah. put her team on her back. Yeah. Yeah, she won the tie. She Single-handedly won the, she won won the, the tie. tie and uh, she had a heroic weekend. It was unbelievable. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I was obviously incredibly 
disappointed for Australia and incredibly disappointed for the fans there that came and supported it. But, you know, kudos to Kiki because that was an, an unbelievable effort. And, you know, keep, keep in mind she just got flicked by her coach as well, right? Big just got, Sasha. Just got the big heave-ho from Sasha and then she's like literally gone unbeaten since he's given her the... So he just missed out on some serious bonuses as well. So, Sasha... I hope it's worth it, man. Because I, I, I've heard, I've heard through the through the lonely streets who he's going to be working with next year. So I hope that works out for him. <laughs> I had heard Kleisters. No, not Kleisters. You can't tell us. Tell us. Well, no, I can't tell you because it's it's not. I don't think it's public yet. Um, so you know, as. Look, listen, as you know, this world is very small and trust is everything. And it's not that he told we me. We won't tell anybody It's not that us. he told me and I, he said, please Should don't say anything. Kidding. But I, somebody in the agent world told me, um, so they obviously know. So, you know. I mean, Sasha is a whole nother situation. We're going to, let's, 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 let's move into just um, quickly uh, your impressions of men's tennis in 2019. Well, um, I mean, by the way, it was uh, Joker, Rafa, Joker, Rafa. Yeah, it's a joke, isn't it? Joker, it's, Rafa. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Yeah, it's, it's incredible. But um, having said that, we talked about it yesterday also on my podcast. Is that how awesome is Medvedev? I mean, that match in the finals at the US Open, the US Open, can I just say, was friggin' amazing this year. The men's was terrible until about the last three days of the tournament. There I was, won't there, agree with that, was, but I thought that the, there was a lot of good tennis, but... Uh, I, the women have outshone the men over the last couple of years at Grand Slam level with some of the matches that they've had. But that the couple matches at the US Open, Berrettini versus Monfils was unbelievable. Nadal versus Medvedev was unbelievable. Yeah. And those those two matches for me stuck in my mind. But the women still killed it at the US Open. But you, um, you, it was you, awesome. You had your eye on Medvedev. Medvedev. Uh, he's a character, man. It's just, we need this guy's like. He looks like a musketeer, right? If you put a if you put a sword in his hand, you'd be like, oh, here he comes, you know, one of the four a musketeers. Yeah, a, a musketeer. A musketeer a Doesn't musketeer. he look like a musketeer? <laughs> Seriously. But you know, he's got the ugliest strokes. He's like, he's gone from being hated on the tennis court by and getting booed and, and then being like loved. He's got these ugly strokes. He's skinny. He's not exactly the most like overtly gorgeous dude. He's not like a Berrettini or like, you know, Medvedev and Sitsipas who get all this love because of their Good-looking, like strong guys. This guy's skinny. He's got an ugly backhand. He's like, he's his, 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 his volleys are ugly. I but have to he's say, so his, fun. His backhand defies logic. He looks like he shovels it. His backhand defies logic. His, you know, forehand's whippy, but it's really. I mean, he's just he's fun. He he doesn't look like he's quick, but he's fast and he anticipates and he's fun. And he's a, listen, a lot of people have, you know, their thoughts about him. He, look, a couple of years ago, he certainly had some issues with saying some stuff that he probably, re I don't know if he regrets, but shouldn't say. But for tennis and his speech at the US Open was, his speech at the US Open was like up there with the greats, with the Lee Nas, you know, Max, you made me very rich, you know, kind of stuff at the US Open. Even Kim Kleiss is saying, I really feel like I'm Aussie Kim now. I mean, there's some classic, you know, winner's speeches, but that's the most classic loser speech I've ever heard in my life. And, oh, the, and, the and classic I, line was when they yeah. played the, the montage of Nadal's all his Grand Slam wins, and he said, man, I'm sitting there thinking, if I had won, what would you have played for me? You know? <laughs> he was. He had a very um, charming speech. He'll have a lot of fans uh, uh, pulling for him next year at the US Open, that's for sure. And he doesn't lose a lot, man. No, no, he's he not. He wins a he's lot of matches. Lot. Yeah, he's good. 
And I think he said that, you know, he once he got engaged or, you know, once he sort of... He's locked, married now, isn't he? I think once he locked it in, though, with his wife yeah. is when his tennis, you know, went. You know, like he Hilarious. found some peace in his life. So Rafa got married, so, you know, maybe he's feeling like he's got a couple good years left in him. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. I, I know a little bit just from listening to your podcast and things, but where does your tennis story begin? <laughs> um, well, my, my older brother played, and um, and then, you know, being Australian, you have to be outside. Doing you grew up where? I grew up in Sydney, um, the beaches of Sydney. And so it's not super conducive. I want to go and play tennis. You want to go to the beach, right? But I just love being outside. I started playing when I was probably about six or seven. I went down to just a local camp and, you know, like everything. Just Your parents? Up and I loved it. No, neither of my parents played. My mom was into equestrian riding. My dad was a swimmer and a surf life-saving guy and didn't really... No, tennis was not in, in our family at all. Um, more horses and things like that. So um, I... Do you know everything about horses? I love horses. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. I, I love horses. You're from a horse family. Yes, my mom was a you know jumped horses and did dressage. My sister teaches dressage, so you know we're from a very horsey mom side of the family. Horses, dad side of the family. Well, dad was more of sort of beach and and that type of thing. So, but yeah, I mean, I was just really a tomboy. I did every sport and I loved it. And then I just remember one moment in my playing tennis where I had to hit serves at and I had to hit a a, a spot in the court and I had to hit the can. You know the the targets, and I thought to myself, that's really easy. So I think that's the moment that I thought, oh, I could maybe do this. And then, you know, it just, it just, it evolves your tennis career. You just start playing junior tennis, you start winning tennis tournaments or being in finals of big national events. And then I went to the Australian Institute of Sport, which really changed my life when I was like 15 and a half. And I moved away from home and I started Where's training. That? That's in Canberra, um, where Nick Kyrgios is from. It's the capital of Australia that nobody knows. And uh, I I really started honing my craft there, traveling on junior tours. And but that's like the Bulletary Academy yeah. of... Well, no. it's the Bulletary Academy of all sports in Australia. All so sports. the best of every sports person, rowers, swimmers, gymnastics, yeah. um, so weightlifting. You, so you left every, home. I left home at 15 and a half and I really never went back. When did you turn pro? Well, we don't really turn pro in Australia because there's no option. Well, there, you can go to college in the United States, but that's not really an option for us. You either go to university and then get a degree and go to, into the workforce or you try this thing called trying to play professional tennis. Um, and so I left, you know, really when I was about 18, 19, I went to the US and I started playing some money tournaments and trying to make some money and get my ranking up and it just went from there. Now in junior tennis, um, did you play like... Junior Wimbledon, Junior French Open, nope. I actually Orange only, Bowl, no, I didn't play, Eddie Hur, none no, of that. I didn't play any, I didn't get picked because you had to be top two in the country to play Junior Wimbledon and Junior French Open, Junior US Open because Tennis Australia had to send you. I was three. We had Mark Woodford on the show and his story of becoming a pro tennis player is wild. Like yeah. he went to Europe to oh, play. Yeah. We uh, all have to do that. I was stringing my own rackets on the road. You know, in Australia, we'd go and drive 14 hours in a van and, you know, string our own rackets and try and get points at a $5,000 tournament. And then, you know, you'd be 800 in the world and then you could maybe get into a 10,000 and I'd go to Europe and I'd play in Cava di Torini and Trieste in Italy and, you know, just random little places all around Europe trying to make points and trying to get your ranking up. It had nothing to do with money. You sounds, were just like to get the, sounds like the endless summer of tennis. No, I mean, I went to 
Bol in, in Croatia oh. and Mali Losinj and Rabach in, 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 as it was known then, Yugoslavia. Um, and we were traveling band of just, you know, young kids, two or three people in a room. You Who know. was it? It was a, a, just Australian tennis players, a, one girl who I played junior, who I played my first Australian Open doubles with, Kate McDonald, players you would never have heard of, you know, that quit because they couldn't do it anymore or are they you, weren't, weren't you good the, enough. Are or, you the only one that came through from your group? No, I mean, there were players like Rachel McQuillan that made it. Rachel jo- McQuillan. Joanne Fall. Um, there was, you know, Kristen Godridge. There was like a lot of Nicole Pratt. Pratt. They were a little bit younger than me, but Kate McDonald was my age. And we would like literally, I mean, I have photos from, you know, these shithole hotels in Italy, you know, where there was no air conditioning. You've like got your windows open. All I can see in the back of the picture is my, my socks that I've washed to try and get the clay out, which never happens, you know, and hanging them and hoping they dry dry in the morning. You know, I mean, that's the schlepping about. I mean, when I qualified for my first Wimbledon, I stayed with my distant cousins out in, the, out in Walton-on-Thames, okay, which is like a 45-minute drive to um, Surbiton qualifying. And I still remember to this day, I had to get to Wimbledon qualifying on the train, okay, from Walton-on-Thames. So I would take the train uh, along the A3 there, Pass and I, I was still to this day. I still remember hearing the halfway stop was Surbiton, and I'd say next stop Surbiton, and that's when I knew I was about twenty minutes away from home or twenty minutes away from getting there. Then I'd take the train all the way to Wimbledon Station. Then I'd schlep to Wimbledon, walking it's to not Wimbledon. That, it's not that close, by the way. To, to get a car to take me to Roehampton. To play the Roehampton. To play qualifying. On the horrible grass of Roehampton. Right? Oh, the horrible grass was good for me, though, man. I was serving a volley. Nobody had a chance against me. I qualified so many times for Wimbledon because nobody could beat me on that shit grass court. You know, I was serving Roehampton, a Chipping and charging. I mean, that was like, I probably won more matches there than I did anywhere. But, you know, and then the second year, I said to when I was qualifying again, because clearly I didn't have a good enough year to get in the qualifying again the next year, my distant cousins uh, on my mom's side were like, we've got a combi van. Do you want to take that? And I was like, yeah, give me the combi van. I mean, for people that don't know what a combi van is, you know, the surf V-dub vans, you know, that I had a red one and I was like driving along the A3 to go to qualifying. Like a Volkswagen, like a Grateful Dead van. Yes, exactly. That was me driving down the A3 to go to qualifying. And I got so much shit from all the players like, what the hell? (laughs) Then of course, inevitably at the end of the day, they're like, hey, can we get a a ride to Wimbledon? It's like, yeah, hop, hop in, you know? So, I mean, those are the days where you're slipping. I mean, to think and to fathom anyone doing that now just to get into the qualies, you know. I hated Roehampton. When was the moment where you knew that your life was gonna be, you know, maybe something special, that you were gonna be like a real pro athlete, main draw, Wimbledon? Well, when I qualified, I, when my first year that I played Wimbledon, I qualified. When, what year was that? Uh, 89, I believe it was. Um, Dang. And I remember I hit a four-end volley on match point against Jennifer Santrock, um, American lefty. And I hit a foreign volley to qualify, and it was the most nervous foreign volley I'd hit at my, in my life. And and I th- and I thought I've made it, you know. <laughs> Little did I know how much more work I had to do. But I think at that time I realised that I could I could make a make a living. I could do this for a job, and I and I could continue to do what I loved for the rest of my life um, until I you know was too old to keep playing. But uh, but then also <clears throat> when I won my first doubles tournament as well. I think that's when I realized also that. Where was that? Um, 
It's a great story as well. Uh, I played with Helena Sokova in Osaka. And at that stage, I was probably 60 in the world. Um, and I was playing doubles in Tokyo the week before with a player um, called Sean Stafford. Sean who Stafford. was the first person to ever play Venus Williams. Um, in her pro de- de- debut. And Sean and I played doubles match and we played against Helena Sokova. And after the match, Helena walked up to me and she said in the locker room, hey, do you want to play Osaka? Which was a smaller tournament in Japan. And I had not intended on going there. I intended to go to the United States and play some tournaments after that. So you're kind of like trying to figure out where you're going to play and where you're going to get in and all that sort of stuff. And I was obviously trying to play singles as well. And, and that's she- a weekly thing, by the way, to this day, you know, people, the, the players and their coaches and their teams are constantly looking at the- Where they're going to get admitting, in. At the, at what are they, the, 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 the acceptance the sheet, lists. The yeah. acceptance lists. And when these acceptance lists come out, you know, but it's you have like, to fill it in six weeks prior. There's like a yeah, deadline. You know, it's, it's not it's a like thing the thing that before. goes on though that you know we don't really see as it's stressful. It's where a, am it's, I going to get in? Where am I getting in? Where how how am I flying there? Where yeah. how, can I play well there? Yeah, or tough. do I go to Osaka to play doubles with Helena Sukova? Yeah, so she asked me to play doubles with her, and I said no because I was like, uh, n- uh, no, I'm not planning on going there. And the reason I said no, really the underlying reason was because I was shitting myself. I didn't want to say yes because I'm like, this is one of the best players in the world. If we don't win Osaka, it's my fault. So there's no chance that I'm putting myself on the line, right? That's all that went through my head in that five seconds of me having to make that decision. And she's like, okay, no problem. Like, she doesn't care, right? She's like, I'll find somebody else, trust me. And so within about 20 minutes later, I was like, what am I thinking? I just said no to Helena Sokova to play a doubles tournament. Am I an idiot? So I ran after her and I'm, I said, Helena. I'm in. I'm like, did you find anyone? She looked at me like I had 10 heads. I'm like, uh, she's like, uh, no, I just asked you like 20 minutes ago. And I was like, well, uh, I'll play now. Is that okay? And she's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Okay. Like, you know, for her, it was like, uh, okay, kid, like no big deal. And so we played and, and we won the tournament and we won the final seven, six in the third. And, um, you know, that changed my life. Who'd you beat? We beat um, Rachel McQuillan, I believe, uh, who was Australian. And we beat um, uh, Collins, uh, last name Collins. I uh, can't remember her first name right now. It's terrible that I can't remember that. No, it's okay. But um, um, so seven, it- six in the third. And so that changed my life because... It made me. Um, it made me think that I could, if if Helena Sokova, who's one of the great doubles players and and great singles players of that of her generation at that time, chose me. I mean, she chose to play with me. I thought she must see something in me. You know that that must mean that switch. I can play. And I went on then to win um, my second tournament with Steffi Graf. Mm. Steffi and I were really good friends, and she asked me to play her home tournament in uh, one of her home tournaments in Hamburg. One of her home and, tournaments. Well, she, you know, she had Hamburg and Berlin. Um, and so I said yes, and she starts out by saying, do you want to play, ha- do you want to play doubles with me in Hamburg? And I was like, we, we played together once before in Japan, actually. And I said, uh, talk about wanting to say no, because talk about pressure. I mean, this is like 1990, 92. Steffi, 92, 92, Steffi Graf, yeah. I mean. Dominance, like, beyond. 
young and playing and, and playing doubles yeah, and, and I mean, traveling with Peter it, right? Groff yeah, and, she was and like on fire. the best player that I mean not losing ever. No, and I said, uh, how'd you get friendly with her? I mean, I I, I, I know just, I went up to her at the Australian Open in 1988 because that was my first tournament that I played, um, first Grand Slam as a pro. I got a wild card in the singles and I played her in doubles. Kate McDonald and I played Steffi and Gabriella Sabatini first mm. round. Can you imagine? And um, we got absolutely thumped and I've never been, I, I was so nervous and I walked off the court and of course me being fairly, you know, uh, easy to, you know, have a chat with somebody, um, you know, I'm pretty, pretty ballsy. I just started talking to her and I probably said, oh my God, you thrashed us and, you know, whatever. And, you and got we, did, we just struck up a friendship, you know, she, she was very quiet, very shy, very shy. And I was very not shy. And Loquacious. so we just, we, just, uh, we just gelled. I think she appreciated the fact that someone would talk to her. And we won that tournament. And she said to me, though, she prefaced by saying, because I was playing for her club in Mannheim, Germany. Are you I was playing? staying at her um, apartment there. And she said to me, hey, do you want to play doubles? And I said, yeah, but I've got club matches on Wednesday and Saturday. And she goes, oh, don't worry. No, verbatim. Don't worry. We've got to play... Sevchenko and some and and Novotna maybe it was second round I can't remember who it was second round but a really good team we got to play them second round you'll be done by Wednesday literally that's what she said and of course we beat them and I'm like well what am I going to do now I went back and played the club match came back to Hamburg and then I said but I've got to be back for the Sun Saturday match it's a big match and she said don't worry we've got to play so and so and so and so in the semis and of course we beat them. So you were playing Bundesliga yes, and, and the tournament. tournament. Yeah. You win the did you win the Bundesliga too? Uh, no, I didn't play the Saturday <laughs> oh, okay, match. I was okay. playing the doubles right. semifinal. So you had to leave the, the Bundesliga yeah, we won and the you won. Yeah, and we actually won that tournament back to about years 92 93 in Hamburg. So what happened to your singles? Um well, you know, I was uh, just always a very natural, better doubles player. It just suit, suited my game. It suited my personality. I never doubted myself on the doubles court. I used to practice with Liz Smiley and Kathy Jordan when I was like 17. Liz Smiley, for our listeners, was a, or is, she's a broadcaster still now, uh, but she is a longtime Australian player. Great singles player, great doubles player. One Wimbledon. Broke the streak of Martina Navrilova and Pam Shriver. And she's had a very, like, super robust life in tennis. Yeah, I yeah. mean, she was, you know, somebody I really looked up to. And she kind of took me under my wing. It's the reason I moved to Orlando, actually, is because Liz was living there. And I saw that I, maybe I should do this as well. And I stayed with Liz and Pete. And I used to practice with her and Kathy Jordan all the time. And they really took me under their wing and they hit with me a lot. And I felt like I could hang with them. But you were a main draw singles player. At what point did you... I was. It just, singles was always so much more difficult for me because my, you know, I used to get so annoyed and so frustrated. And plus I had so many shots to choose from. I mean, that's the problem when you're, I mean, I'm naturally talented. I mean, I, you know, I have like an ease about the way I played. You know, Lisa Raymond was naturally talented. You know, you look at Carla Suarez Navarra, she's just got that fluidity to her game. You know, I was just, I had a lot of choices. You know, I could slice, I could hit over my backhand, I could serve and volley, I could stand back. My forehand was a bit shit, but I could, you know, I was athletic. I had too many shots to choose from. I wish I'd just been, you know, a, a, a gunslinger. Like, it's I funny, could just I... rip my forehand and rip my backhand and not think about it. Well, but it's... I had too many choices. Could I slice a drop shot here? Could I hit out? Could I come in? I just, it took me so long to figure out how to play singles, whereas doubles came naturally. It's sort of a funny thing. Um, as time has gone on, uh, to be a machine is a advantage. It's an advantage young. 
But it, if you can figure out your game and be an all-court player, you will get better as you get older. You just have to hang in there. You know, Ash Barty is a perfect example of that. She is an all-court player. She can play any shot in the book, you know, and so it, she, she's still done very well to have achieved what she's done at 23. But she was also a phenom at 15 winning Junior Wimbledon and then took two years off. Could she have achieved this at 21? Maybe. You know, so she's a bit of a unicorn. But hold on, but I think you said it. You said, you said it. You, you got hurt. You went to 200, yeah, and that's a long way well, to look, come back, the way that, right? The way that it happened with me with my singles, that when I finally started to figure out how to actually play singles a little bit better and be a little bit more demanding, and, and I was working really hard with Ray Ruffles in Orlando. I was doing four hours a day on court. Ray, Ray Ruffles is one of the most famous coaches in Australia. Um, and was he, a great player. He was a himself. player, but he was, in my opinion, most significantly the Woody's coach. Yes, he was. For a long, 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 long time. Yeah, and he was a great coach. He was a great coach. He coached a lot of guys as well. Jason Stoltenberg and a lot of, he was the Australian Institute of Sport coach when I was there. And, and then he went on to coach uh, Todd and Mark. Ray White Ruffles. Himself. Yeah, Ray Grubbs. He gave me the nickname Grubbs. Still texts me now, Grubbs. Um, but, you know, I was working really hard and I was starting to get it and I was starting to figure out how to play singles and I was getting into main draws of Grand Slams on my own and getting through tournaments and then I hurt my wrist really badly in 97. And Was it on a move or was it a wear and tear? I don't know what happened. It was just I had a, a blockage in, uh, in my wrist and it just no one figured it out until it was my ranking had dropped to 200 and I immediately came back and, and did well in doubles, like semis or finals of my first tournament back with Lisa. Did you have wrist surgery? I did not have wrist surgery, thank God, because it wasn't, it didn't need to have surgery. It dissipated, it was just. It was just I had a blockage and, you know, the physios didn't figure it out. It's a long story, kind of pisses me off. But, um, you know, it, it, it took away my ability because as I was finally starting to get it, I mean, I was the number one singles and doubles player in Australia um, in January of 1997, and I was starting to really feel like I, I could do it. And uh, then I hurt my, my wrist. And then when I came back from having no wrist pain, I immediately did well in doubles. But therefore, that means I couldn't make the qualifying of the following week. So it was this juxtaposition of I'm making money in doubles, I'm winning doubles tournaments, and now I'm having to schlep and play these 25s in middle of Michigan and go and play qualies of these tournaments to get my singles ranking back. And then I would get hurt again trying to get my singles. So it wasn't until I was about 29 that I said, okay, you know what, it's time for me just to throw it in and start really concentrating on just doubles only with Lisa. And that's when I won all my Grand Slams. So it was, I mean, it was this decision I had to make, but it's the one, the one and only thing about my career that I wish and I regret is that I didn't quite have the singles um, um, opportunities that I wanted to. And, you know, some of it was just pissing away a lot of opportunities early on in my career, being an ass on court and not, you know, really buckling down and not carrying on like a like a ding-dong. Um, and in doubles, it was a little bit easier to sort of carry on like a ding-dong and have a partner be, pull you out of some of those issues. Um, but sadly, when I started to actually give myself that opportunity to do well in singles is when I, when I hurt my wrist really badly. Who is Lisa Raymond to you? Um, still one of my best friends. We still talk every day. Um, she's, you know, my greatest... Um, you know, doubles partner. Um, we shared an, a tremendous amount of of our tennis life together and our life together. 
Yeah. And, you know, we were, t- we were partners, um, you know, in a relationship for six years of the seven years we played doubles together. And so that in itself is an effort that nobody understands how hard it was to actually deal with that um, personally, you know, to lose matches, walk off the court and, you know, have to deal each... And, and, and one of the reasons is because we were together and played against each other and, and we would... F- that was a nightmare. You know, I mean, I'll never forget one match where I was playing with Lindsay Davenport and, we, and I played against her and, and Gabriella Sabatini and it was a set-all and it rained and we had to go back to the hotel room together and we're like, we're pissed because we, we, I feel like we should have already won. They feel like they should have won and they're like, we're having to talk about it. I was like, this is a nightmare. We can't do this because we, we were going to play each other a lot because we were both really good doubles players. So we're like, well, fuck that. Like, let's just start playing together, you know? And that was the reason, because we couldn't stand playing against each other. Oh, you got together yeah. as a doubles team. After we were together. It, it, together. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, because it was like a nightmare for us to have to play against each other. Um, was there ever, um, did it ever get to a point where you kept the relationship together because of the tennis? or Probably. Or vice- probably. Yeah, probably. I, I think in 2000... By the way, Lisa Raymond, I think she's a Massachusetts girl. She, no, she's a Philly girl. Philly, sorry. Lisa Raymond is a Philly girl that was All-American at, the, at Florida. Florida. Um, one NCAA of the mo- champion. Yeah, one of the most talented uh, players. She's uh, a, for, in my opinion, she's, she, she will be on... She should be on, maybe on a ballot for uh, the Hall of Fame one day. I mean, she was NCAA champion and singles t- first team win for the University of Florida, was a great junior player, then had a phenomenal singles career, top 15 in the world, probably should have had a better singles career, to be honest, and then has won multiple, 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 multiple Grand Slams in doubles and mixed. You well, know, you bronze got, medal. I mean, you guys have Fed six. Cup champion. No, I have, I have six. I have four doubles, two mixed. She has... She has more doubles because she won a couple with um, somebody else. I thought you got one with Cara Black, too. I, d- I won one with Cara Black, yeah. Lisa and I won three. Okay. We should have won more. But every player will tell you that. But we really <laughs> should have won more. Lisa and I should have won a couple more Wimbledons, at least. But, um, yeah, I mean, we never lost a... F- we lost one final. We lost a French Open final. Um, but, you know, she was... Yeah, she was phenomenal. She had a phenomenal career. But, but yeah, it was... We probably did. I mean, when we won... We, we had our best year was probably our worst as a, as a partnership. <laughs> you know, when we won Wimbledon US Open in 2001, that was probably, but we were best friends. You know, we really were best friends. And, and you know, being on the tennis tour is a hard life. And so it was just easier for us just to share it together. Um, and then when we broke up, we broke up, which was really a dumb financial decision from both of us because we were having a phenomenal couple of years when we broke up. We won 17 tournaments in those two years. And then at the end of that, she's like, okay, goodbye. And so it was like that broke up everything. And, you know, she started playing with Lindsay Davenport at the end of that year. And we still played the championships together that year, which was a lot of fun. Not, And, you know, and that was it. And we, we, we played again in 2010, which was a yeah, I feel like full I need, circle I moment. feel like I need therapy. Yeah, it was a full circle <laughs> moment. We, we, we finished uh, 2010 together and we made the championships again. And 2010? It's not that long ago. No, I know. We we made the championships in 2010, and uh, that was my 15th ch- championships. And Lisa, I don't know how many she made, but a lot. And it was nice to share it with her. 
I have a photo of her downstairs of um, us hugging after the match because we knew that was the last match we'd ever play together. Yeah, I feel like this is that like either pretty, like a podcast anthology or a book <laughs> or something. Yeah, maybe one day. Maybe one day? Yeah. Um, the Olympics, what, 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 uh, what do the Olympics mean to you? Frustration. Uh, frustration. I mean, because... You I've, played four. I played four Olympics. My best year probably to do, my best time to do really well was probably my first year. And I, um, I talked about this on the podcast with Caitlin about I had the worst cramps of my life from my period, which we never talk about because guys are yeah, like, gross. And I'm like, I literally didn't walk onto the court for my first doubles at the Atlanta Olympics with Nicole Bradkey, and we were a really good doubles team. And yeah, I've had, I long, had to pull out. I've had long talks with Ashley Harkelroad about that, and she, Ashley said, she's like, you guys, she's like, none of you guys realize no. what is going on in that locker room. Yeah. You get your period, you have PMS. You can't go play, then you can play well one week. You don't, Sometimes it's, it's you a lot can't of figure out why the hell is, am, I, am I hitting the ball in the fence today? Like, and then all of a sudden you're like, my, why is my back killing me? And, and it was one time in Eastbourne, I was like, my back seized up. And I was like, what the hell's going on? I'd never had a problem. Next day, bang, I'm like, oh, of course, that's why, you know. But the Olympics, I did not walk onto the court. I was rushed to the hospital. They were that bad. It was that bad for me. I'm throwing up. Nicole's like, oh my God, are you okay? I said, I don't know what's happening. It was the first time it really happened to me that badly. And I didn't get an opportunity to walk on the court for that particular Olympics, which was my best opportunity, I think, to win a medal. And then the next couple were tough. I played with Yelena Dokic in Sydney. I played with Alicia Mollick. Great players, all of us great players. On paper, we should win a medal, but we, I never played with them. You just can't make magic out of, like, randomness, you know? Sometimes it's hard Sometimes to just show up. Sometimes it can up. happen. I made my first Grand Slam final with Brenda Schultz. We'd never played together before. That shit doesn't happen all the time. You know what I mean? You don't have that magic dust where you just get along really well, you know, it, it meshes, it works. And I was always, like, one or two or three or four in the world when I was playing Olympics, you know? And then my last Olympics with Sam in Beijing would have been a great opportunity. But we played the next year together and made the championships, made finals of Wimbledon, and we needed to have that year the year before the Olympics, right? So there, it was always just, and again, on paper, those are stubs. We should do well, right? Well, we did the next year, but that was one of our first matches together was the Olympics. So it was frustrating in the point of view that I didn't play enough with the person I played the Olympics with to do well. So it's the one blemish on my career that Listen, I never won a medal. I hope you're proud of your career. Like Lisa's I mean, biggest thing is like winning that bronze medal in mixed is like one of the proudest things of her whole career. And she won 79 tournaments. You know what I mean? Like yeah. for me to have won a, 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 any kind of medal at the Olympics would be front and center on my wall. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's the one thing. That's why I say it's frustrating. But, but, you, but having hope, said that, God, it was amazing to play. But I hope you're proud of 20 years on tour. I mean, yeah. you did 19 years. Yeah, it's incredible. I'm, obviously, I'm very you're proud. You're one of the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of my career. Yeah. Do you enjoy being a broadcaster? I love it. I mean, you know, people are like, do you love, do you, what do you like better, coaching or broadcasting? And I love them both for different reasons. I love, I love to educate the public and uh, seeing what they're, you know, help them see what they see on the tennis court. I have, a, I have an enormous amount of passion for the sport and I hope that comes through when I broadcast. I also try and be super positive when I'm doing broadcasting because I think it's really important for people to understand at home that what they're seeing is not that easy and what they're seeing and when somebody chokes, explain why and not just be like, oh my God, they suck today. 
explain maybe why they suck. Um, so I, I'm at the, I think I'm a little bit more empathetic. So do you, I also think that you do the work and you know what you're talking about. And well, I'm around not, it a lot still. I'm you saying know? you're in the trenches and you're doing the work, so it's yeah, different. Yeah, and I talk to the players. I, I try and still have a really good relationship with all the players, and I think that's also why I try and be positive because I know them as people, and so I try and explain why they're throwing their racket maybe. Or Do you have a best moment in broadcasting? Um, it doesn't well, have to be yeah, something extremely um, heavy. I, but. I think... Um, just in general, some of the matches that I've called ha have been great, but, um, you know, there's a number of I mean, Australian Open finals have been pretty amazing to call sideline there. And But I think probably the most memorable moment of my broadcasting career was my on-court interview with Mariana, uh, Mariana Lucic about three years ago at the Australian Open when she broke down and sort of um, made me <laughs> kind of lose it as well in the, in the interview um, when she kind of made the semi-finals of the Australian Open again after a 19-year sabbatical of not making a semi of a Grand Slam. And, um, you know, her sort of getting very emotional and that got a tremendous amount of, like, viral um, press um, over those couple of days just because of her moment. And the thing that I want by to get the way, across... By the way, one of the greatest moments uh, uh, in sports um, in, in some time was Mariana Lucic making that run. She had been the most highly touted player who came up with Kornikova and Hingis uh, and was off the tour and came back at 35. Well, and the and thing is... Semi the, and semi the Australian Open. But the, but, the, but, the, but the story yeah. of me with her is that when she won her first round at the Australian Open that, that year, I happened to be watching Andrea Pekovic play at the Australian Open because I was in a break of a couple of hours broadcasting. And I went out and watched Andrea, who, as you know, Petko is one of my best friends. And playing behind me was Mariana Lucic. And she was playing against Wang Chung, who's had a great couple of years, okay? And she wasn't really known back then. And Mariana Lucic is battling. And it's like 7 o'clock at night. It's cold. I'm like, and I remember saying to myself, look at Mariana Lucic still battling out there, trying to win a match here at the, you know, in the slams, right? Cut to next day, I see she wins 6-4 in the third. I see her in the locker room. I'm like, Mariana, I'm like, great job, dude, okay? Remember, I played the same time as her, okay? So she says, yeah, can you believe that's the first match I've won here in 19 years? I said, are you fucking out of your mind? She goes, yeah, and you know, you know who I beat to win that last match here? And I'm like, no, who? I'm thinking, you know, Martina Navratilova. She goes, you, and I'm like, what? So the last match you won here? out of all these years, was me. And she goes, yeah, don't you remember? I'm like, I, I remember losing to you here, but when, she goes, yeah, court three, blah, blah, blah. And she goes into full details. And I'm like, oh yeah, now I remember. Frick, that's right. You had as many people cheering for you as you did me because it's you know, a lot of Croatians in Melbourne. And she's like, yeah, that was the last match I won here. So then cut two, 10 days later, I'm doing this interview with her. And I was so emotional because I remember this conversation in the locker room. And so I say to her, and I hate bringing up myself in the interviews because I, I don't like to do that because it's so wanky, you know. But I said, you told me 10 days ago, basically, that the, you, the first match you won here in 19 years was against me. <laughs> and now here you are. So it was like this beautiful moment for me as a former player, as somebody who really likes her as a human being, and then to see this moment and also to be a former player, to know what that meant. To uh, her. There were so many memorable moments and at she that was, tournament. And she was wrapped up like a mummy. I mean, there was so many. That and then my interview with Venus, you know, when she made the next 
the next day when she made the final for the first time in umpteen years. And, and, and I remember um, Bobby Feller, who's a, our great producer uh, at uh, ESPN, and he's been doing it for as long as I've been playing and being on tour. He said to me later, he goes, yeah, when you were interviewing Venus, I said to everyone, here she goes again. She's going again. She, he thought I was going to cry. I was crying in that interview as well because so those are moments. My, the moments that mean the most to me, yes, are the calling of the matches and being sidelined and, and actually being part of history of watching something. But it's the on-court interviews and the moment because I'm the first person they see and talk to. If I can elicit some kind of emotional something and have the public see them as I see them as people and friends, that's the moments that I treasure the most, is seeing that normal person that I see, that I get to see all the time in the locker room. I've had intimate moments with, having conversations with about their life or their tennis. When I get to see that on the court for everybody else to see and the tennis community to see watching on television, those are moments that you just go, okay, that's golden because they get to see that side of them that I get to see. And so that, that means really a lot to me. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. It's not a deep dive. I just say something. Yeah. And then you say just whatever comes into your mind. I have a hard time with that. I'm joking. Favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Least like tournament? Oh, God. It's got to be a tournament you hate, you can tell us. I mean, it's got to be a place you just despised going for your whole life. Mm, China. All of it. Just, yeah, that end of the year was always really tough. Anywhere in China. Because... Nothing against the Chinese. Right. It's just... It's <laughs> Explain just, that. You it's gotta, just, it just... It's just too much. Yeah. It's too much. It was just, yeah. I, I think it's just you're just mentally just tapped. And by the way, it seems like the whole tour is just tapped yeah, by you're then. Yeah, just tapped. We need to talk about that another time. Yeah. Favorite player growing up? Hanuman Lakova. Favorite player now? On the women's tour or the men's tour? Just in general? Rafa. Vegemite. Awesome. I had it this morning on my toast. Duckbill platypus. What about it? It's awesome. What a, a platypus. You've seen them? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. I go to the zoo. Only in the zoo? Only in the zoo. You don't I, see actually, them like on the street? Have I seen one? I might have seen one. You don't see them on the street? No. No. They're, they're not like the squirrels? They're in the water. They're in the water. Yeah, they're flipping around in the water. Yeah. Duckbill platypus is only in the water? I think so, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Someone's going to tweet me and be like, you're an idiot. You don't know anything. Say, Aussie yeah, rules I football. I'm, I'm not really. Sydney Swans are my team. But I'm a Sydney girl. We're not into, we're, we're rugby league people. Rugby league, yeah. not rugby union. No, I'm rugby union, yes, but rugby league. I'm, the, I'm a Sydney, Sydney Roosters girl. You're from girl. Sydney, Aussie. From I'm Aussie. a Sydney Roosters girl. Margaret Court. What about her? <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> um, great tennis player. Um, do you have any interesting opinions you care to share about where she's landed? Here's my thing about Margaret Court is um, if you don't have anything nice to say about somebody and or people, don't say them at all. Keep them to yourself. And I think if you have a building or a tennis center or a stadium named after you, you have to understand that that means that people of uh, 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 of uh, of uh, whomever you don't agree with, whether they be LGBT, whether they be black, whether they be Hispanics, whatever it is, people that you don't like, you have to understand they're all walking through those gates. 
They're all walking into that stadium. They're all walking into that tennis center. So if your name's attached to that, you better be inclusive of everybody because everybody has to be inclusive of your name on that building. And so that's my problem. Moving into our fifth and final set, we call this the queen of the courts. Um, if you were the queen of tennis and you could make a change with one sweep of the racket, what would it be? Oh, it's that's easy. Bring all of tennis under one umbrella. Bring the ATP and WTA under one umbrella. Men and women together, collaboratively, and this this fight with the ITF, the Grand Slams and the Tour is just a disaster for tennis. And I just think if the men and the women were under one tour and, you know, fought the fight together, um, it would make a, a tremendous amount of difference for the sport of tennis. And this, you know, fighting back and forth for various things is just, it's not great. And by the way, the best events are the mixed events. Absolutely. 100%. Grand Slams, and, and, as, Wells. and as a player. 100%. 100%. And for spectators. And then I think, you know, we talked about it yesterday. Um, you know, have have uh, some exhibitions, women only, men only, or whatever. What, how about, have, by the way, how how much better would these Asia tournaments be if they were mixed events? Yeah, they'd be great. Well, Beijing's probably the better event because it's a mixed event with the men and the women together. You'd have less tournaments. You could have the players play singles, doubles, maybe mixed you could throw a mixed doubles tournament in there from time to time. Like, there's so much we could do with tennis. Instead, they want to have these friggin' team events. What about what about better sponsor opportunities? There's more team events because every tennis player wants to play team events as well. You know, and so they're they're playing team events over playing regular t- tour events. It's like you imagine, you know, it, it, you get the Labor Cup and it involves the women as well. Like, you know, or you have you have a, t- a, a you have a team event. That, that involves both the men and the women, you know, Hopman Cup. How great was Hopman Cup? And they've taken that away. There's just opportunities, I think, for the, for the tours, the men and the women's tours to work together. And, you know, the, the guys bitch and complain about, you know, best of five sets and they should get paid grand, and more at Grand Slams. Well, then the women can play best of five if you really want to have that argument or have the men play best of three because that's, that's, some, that's some bullshit argument. Second of all, Imagine if when Roger and Rafa are gone, okay? The men's tour, is that like something you're like jumping out of your skin to go and see? Like there's certain, you have to understand that it's all cyclical when these champions, these great champions retire. You know, when Serena retires or when Roger retires. And yes, then you start to see these other names start to make a name for themselves. But, but when these top stars go... If, if the tours are together, there's a lot more, you know, absorption of these superstars that are gone as well that can help each other. So, I don't know. I just think that, that that's something that you, you, you need to look at as well. Renee Stubbs, can't thank you enough for uh, talking all these different things with us. You're welcome. Enjoy the holidays. And uh, normally we say you are released, but we're in your place, so we'll uh, so find our released. way out. We're so out get released. out of here. That's get it. A, leave me alone. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. All right now. Thanks. Huge thank you to Renee Stubbs. To hear more of her insight and witty repertoire, check out the Racket Magazine podcast. I'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. Please see what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. We want to thank Patreon subscribers Jimmy Miller, Camilla Korzeniowska-Khan, and a man who just wants to be known as Jonathan. 
We really do appreciate your support. If you want to join the Under Review family and get cool perks, please head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. We really do appreciate it. Thank you to Caitlin Thompson from Racket Magazine. And thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. To catch some clips from some of our interviews, please check out our YouTube page. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Sandra from Sound on Set recorded this episode, and Jason Finnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. Released.